0: Well, good morning everyone. Welcome out. Welcome to those that are joining us online. Um, I know in a room this size and those that are gathering at home or wherever you may be that kind of like what Matt said, we come with all these mixed emotions. For some it was a great week or maybe for some it was a really busy week and you're kind of feeling distracted or for some it's just been a hard week. There was been loss or grief or just the the heaviness of walking through a broken world, but we know that as we gather together that there is healing that takes place, that the Spirit meets us where we are and encourages us to take those next steps and it allows allows us this time of gathering and worshiping and we turn our hearts and our attention to the one who has promised to make everything right ultimately. So let's go to him in prayer as we get started this morning. Father, we are so thankful uh, just to be reminded of the fact that Uh, You are a personal God who meets with your people, and so God, we come this morning with all of us, with all of who we are, uh, the burdens and the celebrations and all of the distractions of life, and God, we come to you, and for this little bit, as we open up our hearts and our minds to your word and to the working of your spirit, I just pray, Spirit, that you would do your work, that you would meet us exactly where we are that you would comfort those that need to be comforted, challenge those that need to be challenged, But God, as a result of meeting you today, that we would leave here changed. We give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are joining with us for the first time or maybe just the last couple of weeks, we are in this year-long study of looking at God's story of redemption to fully and to finally and to ultimately deal with the problem of sin that began in the Garden of Eden in the fall. And his promise of redemption begins with one person, Abraham, and the descendants of Abraham become the nation of Israel. And as, we, as we've read through scripture and we've tried to apply this to our lives, we, we've honed in on some, some well-known stories and some well-known people in the Old Testament. Some of them are, example, are examples to follow, and sometimes they are examples to avoid. Uh, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that these, these ancient stories were preserved and given to us For a reason, that they were given to us to guide our steps and to apply it to our lives today. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, These things, these stories of of Israel, happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think that you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Sometimes when we read through these Old Testament stories, it's easy sometimes to think, How stupid do you have to be to fall for that? Or or how can you forget what God has done just in the recent past? And Paul tells us, be careful if you have that kind of attitude. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. You're not so different than them. I'm not so different than them. And we are just as susceptible and we are just as vulnerable to, to temptation in our lives as they were. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves down a similar path that they did and find ourselves in, ended up in a place where like, how in the world did I end up here? Well, this morning we're going to open up our Bibles and open up our hearts and our minds uh, to another time in the life of Israel. And this is a little lesser known of a story, but it captures for us just how far God is willing to go to get his people to return to him. And it's a little complicated because you have to bounce between uh, three different books of the Bible to, to gather this whole story. But we're going to do our best to, to, to make our way through it. So, a quick recap of where we are in the, the history of Israel. Um, in the year around 937 BC, the nation of Israel splits. And there is the northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel, and the southern, the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And for about 50 years, um, or 350 years these two nations have a series of kings and some were obedient to the commands and the law of God but a lot of them weren't and there's something we need to understand about God's law God's law was given he gave it to them uh, and it reflected his character it was meant to reflect his character and his holiness and his justice and his mercy and, and entangled in this the, these commands and his law but were also moral boundaries He defined for them what is right and what is wrong. And he defined how to care for the weak and the vulnerable and and how to treat others with love and respect. And his law was meant to define Israel's identity as his chosen people. It was meant to make them distinct, different, set apart from the other nations and cultures. And it was meant to emphasize that they were a unique people that had a unique job in God's redemptive story. So God gave the law, and then the kings were accountable to making sure that the people of Israel followed through those. But what happened was these kings started looking around at the surrounding nations, the, the surrounding neighbors, and seeing how they were doing. And what they noticed was that, that their gods didn't require any kind of moral code, that, that, their religious prac- that their religious practices only required that they make sacrifices. And then they could do whatever they wanted, and they could treat people however they wanted Well, they liked that system a whole lot more. And what you find as you read through the books, the book of first and second Kings is they were constantly drawn to these other cultures, drawn to these other religions and and they started chasing after them and they would abandon the ways of God while they did it. And whenever a king went against God, God would send a prophet to warn them that there were gonna be consequences. To, and to, to warn them to, to repent and to return to God and to reestablish his practices. And when the kings heeded those warnings, God would relent. But if they refused, if they continue to follow these other practices, then God would judge them, and he would hold them accountable. And what he would do is he would allow these surrounding nations to cross the borders and to raid into the nation of Israel or Judah. And it was, it was as if God was saying to them, you think you want to be like your neighbors? Tell you what, let me give you a real close-up look of what these neighbors are really like. Well, in the year 722 B.C., after a series of really wicked kings in the northern kingdom, it's overtaken by the Assyrian army, and they haul everybody off. And the northern kingdom of Israel ceases to be. They are no longer. The southern kingdom survives for a little while longer, but, but they also continue to struggle to follow after the ways of God, and so in the year 605 BC, Babylon becomes the world power, and King Nebuchadnezzar takes his whole army, and he heads down to Jerusalem in Judah to take it over, and during the ensuing battle, the, the king of Judah dies, and, and the people of Jerusalem immediately name his son as his predecessor. Jehoiakim becomes the next king. The problem was that he was only 18 years old. And he just witnessed the power of Nebuchadnezzar. And he witnessed his dad dying in the field. So after three months, he surrenders Jerusalem. And the Babylonians come in and they raid the city treasury and they, they raid the temple. And they take their plunder and they take all of Judah's fighting men and they take 10,000 of the best and the brightest leaders of Jerusalem back to Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar establishes Zedekiah, this man named Zedekiah, as the next king of Judah. And he was just a a puppet king. He was only put in the position there and he was given very explicit orders. Don't try anything funny. Don't reestablish an army and make sure you send the check every month to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And if he doesn't, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll come back and I'll finish what I started. So what we're going to find this morning, we're going to focus in on is the story of Zedekiah. And it's found in a couple of different books, but we'll make our way first. In 2 Chronicles 36, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. Zedekiah was in Jerusalem at the time. So, so he knew firsthand and he witnessed firsthand the, the power of the Babylonians. He, he'd witnessed what had happened to the last two kings and now he was the king. And you would think that he would get it right this time, but He's just like us. And he started thinking that he was the exception to the rule. And he started thinking that he was better than the other two guys. And he makes a series of really serious missteps. Verse 12, it says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. So God does what he's done in the past. He sends Jeremiah straight to Zedekiah and he tries to wake him up from his stupor and he tells him to to reestablish the temple worship and to tear down the pagan idols to return to God and if he'll do so then God will continue to honor his covenant with the nation but Zedekiah is he's intoxicated with his power and he's intoxicated with his pride and he thinks and he ends up making this unthinkable decision he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name and he became stiff-necked and hardened his heart, it would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. This has to be one of the dumbest military decisions in all of history. Zedekiah says, you know what? I don't think I'm gonna send the check this month. And it's hard to comprehend just how foolish and how idiotic this is. The Babylonians were the world they had the largest army, and Judah is just a, a, a small fragment of the nation of Israel, just a blip on the map. And King Nebuchadnezzar handles this news how you thought that he would. He shows up at the front door, the front gate of Jerusalem, to finish what he started. So in 2 Kings 25, it records this. It says, so in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and he encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Nebuchadnezzar just lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. And for two years... No one enters and no one leaves. It's just a waiting game. What Nebuchadnezzar knew was if I just wait long enough, that disease and famine will take over and I can just march right in and not lose any of my soldiers. And that's what happens. It says, then the city wall was broken through and the whole army, this is Zedekiah's army. Zedekiah's army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. And there the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward Erebah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured, and he was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where a sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. And before they left, the Babylonians go in, and they completely ransack the place this time, They destroy the walls of the city. They set fire to the temple and to the palace, and they haul all of the survivors back to Babylon. And that was the end of the kingdom of Israel. Now, there was no Israel in the north. There was now no Judah in the south. Zedekiah was the last king. And what we find as we read through this is that God went to great lengths over and over again to get his people's attention, but they wouldn't surrender. They wouldn't relent, and they wouldn't turn back To God, And I think that's the first thing that we learn from this story, is that we must surrender to God's lordship of our lives. God has a plan and he has a purpose for your one and only life. But the only way to experience the life that he created for you is to to fully surrender to him as the lord of your life and the leader of your life. Surrender was at the core of the problem that God had with the kings of Israel, he would send these prophets to them and, and call them back to obedience, call them back to, to allegiance to him, but they wouldn't fully commit to God and God alone. They, they kept hedging their bets. They, they didn't have complete confidence that the Lord would meet all their needs. And it wasn't like they completely abandoned worshiping God, but they just diversified their portfolio a little bit. They hedged their bets and they would add The worship of these other gods to the mix. They would worship God and Asherah. They would worship God and Baal. They would worship God and Molech. And if you look at our lives, we're guilty of the same thing from time to time. We're not real sure. We're not convinced that God's ways will lead to the successful life or the happy life or the comfortable life that, that we desire and so we begin to hedge our bets as well and we opt for this partial surrender and sometimes partial surrender looks like this this thought or this attitude of yeah I, I believe in God but but I still want control over my life or I still want control over some aspect of my life and so I'm going to decide which of God's commands I'm going to follow and which ones I think that I'm the exception to or maybe for you, it looks like that you have this internal wrestling match because you, you feel like God is directing your path to go a different direction in your life, that he's calling you to something different in your life, but but you're struggling because it doesn't quite match up with the plans that you had for your life. And you haven't surrendered the plans of your life to God's leadership. And God says to them and to us that there is no partial surrender there's no such thing as partial surrender life with God doesn't look like that if you want to experience my joy and my blessing then what you have to do God says is you have to live your life with an open hand you've got to let go of the reins of your life and trust him fully a fully surrendered life means getting to this place where you truly believe that God's ways are best And that you you believe, you know what, I know and I understand that God is for me. And the commands that he gives me are for my good. And then if we can get to that place, then we can live with open hands and say, God, not my will, but thy will be done in every area of our lives. And that is that we come to God and say, God, I'm not perfect, but I'm accountable to you. And I want to get my life right. I, I want to get my financial life right, and my thought life right, and my dating life right, and my family life right. God, I really believe that you have a plan for my life and that your ways are best. So I'll come and say, God, you lead, I'll follow. I'm making you the the Lord of my life and I'm fully surrendering every aspect of my life to you. That's the surrendered life that God blesses. That's the kind of life that God can use. And what this story shows is that God will go to great lengths to get us, to get His people to that, to that posture and to that attitude and that direction of life. Well, the story doesn't end there. The, the once glorious city of Jerusalem now lies in, in ruins. The, the magnificent temple, the symbol of God's presence among His people now lies in ashes. The the walls are down, they they have no security, they have no protection and they're vulnerable and now the people of Israel are are all displaced. They're scattered throughout the known world. And for the people of Judah, this was a devastating blow. Their beloved city, this center of their faith and their identity was no more. And so they found themselves now in a foreign land far from home, they're now in a culture that is completely against them, it's hostile to, to their beliefs and their values, and so it was a time of confusion, I mean, it was a, it was a time of, of despair and doubt, and things seem hopeless, and it seems like God's promise to bless the world through the people of Israel wasn't going to happen, but God sends a message to the exiles that are now in, Bab, in Babylon, it's this message of both truth and judgment, but also hope and grace that Jeremiah goes to them and he lets them know God loves you too much to let you live this disobedient life and, and that God's plan of redemption is too important for you to turn a blind eye to what he's calling you to. And so he's gonna discipline you through this exile in Babylon. But in the midst of this warning and in the midst of this judgment, Jeremiah also sends them a message of hope And promise. It's found in Jeremiah 29. It says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call on me and you will come to pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. God has a much longer view than we do. And in his sovereign timing, God is working all things together for our good, even times of discipline. But discipline in the moment, it just, it feels harsh. It feels final. It feels condemning. And so God tells them through Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you. In other words, he is telling them, I'm not finished with you yet. And I know right now you think that I'm just coming to harm you, but this discipline is for a reason. If I'm going to use you, then I need to do some work on your hearts. And at the end of this discipline, you will get to a place in your hearts where you will call on me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me. And then at that point, then I can restore You I can return you back to where you were, and I can restore the promise to bless the world through you. And so God allowed them to feel the the full weight and the full consequences of their sin and the rebellion so that so that they would eventually return to him. And that's exactly what happens. About fifty years later, seventy years after Nebuchadnezzar first attacked, God gathers the Jews that were scattered throughout the known world. He brings them back to Jerusalem to to start over because he was not done with him. I think the second lesson that we learn from this is that God disciplines to bring us back, not pay us back. And again, what this story illustrates for us is just this incredible links that God will go to get your attention and to bring you back to to a place of full surrender to his plans for your life. I, I love the words, of Jesus down in Revelation three. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be honest and repent. Discipline is not a sign of God's anger. Discipline is actually a sign of his love for you. The, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. I, I, I discipline my kids because I love them, because they are mine, because they belong to me. I, I don't discipline my neighbor's kids, I just send them home but my kids belong to me and so I want to discipline to to direct their path to to God's ways and in the same way God disciplines us because we belong to him and he has a plan for our lives and he wants to to bring us back to that path and then notice what, what Jesus says in verse 20 he says here I am I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me Jesus says look here I am. In other words, I haven't gone anywhere. I, I've been here the whole time. Knocking and waiting and trying to get your attention so that so that we can have a restored relationship, so we can have restored fellowship together. See, when we understand that God's discipline is for our good and it's there to, to restore us, that then it changes our posture during those times. And we can approach times and seasons of discipline with a different kind of attitude we go to god and say god what do i need to learn right now what is it that you are trying to show me is there an area of disobedience that i need to address if there is help me to see that blind spot so that i can surrender that to you or is there a relationship that i need to heal some relationship that i've harmed that i need to make amends or is there a different path that you're calling me to that, that maybe I have resisted? Whatever it is, don't waste the seasons of discipline. Walk towards it. Co- cooperate with God so that he can change your heart and so you can get your life back on the right path. God uses the, the discipline of exile to reach the hearts of his people that are in Babylon so he can restore them back to Jerusalem. But, but that's not the end of God's promise to the nation. Jeremiah goes on in in, uh, chapter 31 and he speaks of a deeper restoration beyond simply just restoring them back to Jerusalem. He says it this way. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. "I, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. This this new covenant that God is going to establish is a radical shift in the way that he will relate to his people. It'll be a covenant of of grace and forgiveness, where the, the barriers of sin and the barriers of disobedience are broken down. And instead of relying on these external laws and external rituals, what God says is no, that that there's going to be an internal transformation of the heart that will turn people back to him. And this promise of a new covenant, it's ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus provides the way for complete restoration between us and God, for reconciliation and redemption. And through his sacrifice on the cross, he offers forgiveness. And that that we can now be made right with God, that we can be completely reconciled with our holy God. And so this is the the third lesson that we learn is that we need to embrace God's offer of a transformed life. What we see in this this promise of a new covenant that God is, is making is first and foremost, this new covenant brings an invitation to have a direct and a personal relationship with God. He says God desires to be our God while we become his people. And what this means is that we are moving uh, beyond just rituals and surface level knowledge of God. And instead what we're doing is we're embracing a deep and an authentic connection with God. But but that takes effort on our part. That that takes some prioritization on our life to, to cultivate that kind of relationship. So we spend time in his word. You hear us over and over again say, 15 minutes in God's word will change your life because it's there that we get to meet him. We get to know who he is and what his character is like. We spend time in prayer and we listen for his voice. We we gather together for worship and to to be able to experience his presence in our lives and to draw near to him. And then secondly, he says that God declares that that he will write his law on our hearts, meaning that there will be this, this deep, inward change that, that affects our thoughts, that, that affects our attitudes, that affects our actions, and that will begin to align our lives with what God's will is on how we go through this life. But this transformation is not something that we accomplish on our own. It's actually the, the, the role of, or the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And as we surrender to his leading, and as we yield our lives to his guidance and his correction, and as we submit to the truths of God's commands, then what we'll find is that our lives get transformed and we'll look more and more like Jesus. That this transformation that God is gonna take place happens not from just external conformity, but it actually happens from the inside out. And then God says that through this new covenant that he will forgive our sins and remember them no more. This is a profound act of grace. And it frees us from guilt. It frees us from shame. It frees us from the weight of our past mistakes. And it brings peace. It brings restoration between us and God and allows us to experience the fullness of God's love. Free from the weight of sin and guilt and shame. So now we can freely come to him. And we know with confidence that if we confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and that he is just to forgive us. And then what God says is that in response to receiving that kind of grace in our lives, that he wants us to extend that same kind of grace to others, to extend that kind of forgiveness to those that have harmed us in some way. And as we embrace God's forgiveness toward us and as we extend that grace to others, then we experience healing. And we experience restoration in all of our relationships. First with God, but then with others. And and we have this opportunity to, to reflect his character and reflect his attributes to the world around us. This transformed life that God offers us. Where he says... Come to me, and I will be your personal God. I'll be your personal God and leader as you navigate your way through this life, and I will shape your hearts, and I will shape your attitudes, and I will shape your minds to look and to think and to act like Jesus. And I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you peace through receiving forgiveness and by extending forgiveness to those in your life. The nation of Israel continually turned their back to God and they continued to rebel against him and, to, and his ways, but God faithfully loved them and he faithfully pursued them and ultimately his discipline prepared them so that they could fulfill his promise to, to redeem the world through a new covenant that opens the door for an eternal relationship with our heavenly father. What a story of God's enduring love. And the bottom line from this for me is that God is not finished with you yet. He's not finished with me yet. He didn't give up on them, and He's not given up on you. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but it requires surrendering our ways to His ways. And it requires receiving those seasons of, of discipline as actually a means of grace. that we can make the changes in our life to look more like Jesus and it requires embracing his goal to transform our lives from the inside out. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that that you are not done with us yet. That he who began a good work in us will complete it. God, we look at our lives and we, we see the areas of, of life where, where we're struggling or maybe we haven't turned over to you and, and we don't see the change taking place. So, so God, bring us to a place where we can be courageous enough and bold enough and obedient enough to, to let go and to fully surrender our lives to you. Because God, we know that your ways are best. We know that you are for us. We know that you love us. So give us the courage to identify those areas and to surrender them to you. And God, if there are times in our lives where we are disobedient and you bring discipline, help us to remember and to recall that your discipline is to bring us back to you, not pay us back. Help us to embrace that and to change and to grow. God, thank you. Thank you that you offer a transformed life, that I don't have to be who I am right now, but God, that you can change me. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your, thank you for your forgiveness that allows us to take these steps and draw closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for coming out. A couple real quick things. If you're a big kick coach, you're having a meeting at 11 o'clock upstairs. And if you serve in any area around here, go grab you a couple of ice cream on us. Thank you guys. See you next week.